Psalm 19. As always, we're going to start with the reading of the psalm. This one is, as I mentioned, it's by David. It was originally written not just as poetry, but as a song. You know, the unfortunate thing is we don't have the music, so we could just we could make up our own, I suppose. Um, and there are a lot of songs based on this, uh, even songs that are not in quotes of this psalm, but inspired by the spirit of it. Uh, how great thou art. Songs like that that remind us of how we see God all around us, not in a pantheistic way where God is trees and God is leaves, but in the acknowledgement that God has created all that we see and all that we enjoy and all that we're blessed with, that it all comes from him. So let's read this together. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of the chamber or out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Amen. Lately, I mean, I think we've experienced that. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is a great reward. But who can discern their own errors. Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and these meditation or this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All right. So like a lot of the David's Psalms, they start from really a very emotional place. Okay? And I think that's one of the things that we, particularly as Church of Christ, a lot of the people in the room, Church Christ people need to remember. Spiritual things are emotional things. Now, that doesn't mean that it's only emotional or that it's ruled by emotion, but we went through, <coughs> pardon me, we went through a trend for a long time uh, where emotions were shunned, where that was seen as something that was to be avoided, where you didn't get too excited. You sure didn't shed a tear in public. You didn't do it. You were, we were very stoic. The problem is the gospel is not stoic. And stoicism is not the gospel. That's where we were. Emotion was bad. It was evil. It was to be avoided at all costs. One extreme, of course, and they were trying to avoid emotionalism, where emotion rules all, and that is unhealthy. And then and in Steering away from that, they just ran right into the other ditch, which is an unemotional, stale, logic-only faith that is as dead as the other side, but actually also looks it, you know? You know, some sometimes you drive past roadkill and you think, that might get back up. Not this. It doesn't get back up. David was incredibly emotional, 
and incredibly spiritual. He wasn't spiritual in a weird way. He was spiritual in a very real and raw way. So if he was feeling anger, you would read about that. God, I wish you would just smite them all right now. And it didn't mean that he was always right in his attitude or his judgment. It just meant that he knew he could go to God with that. And so, so can we. We can go to God with that. And it may be that God goes, yeah, that made me mad too. Or it may be that God says, you might need to simmer down there, buddy. Either way, you can go to God with that. It also meant that when it came time to praise God for what David saw, he didn't hold back as we often do. He unleashed all of his praise and all of his song and all of his poetry toward God and his gratitude toward God in a way that, frankly, a lot of people now would probably be uncomfortable with. I know there's a couple of chapters of David I'm real uncomfortable with, but God wasn't, and that's the important part. God wasn't. And sometimes we mistake what we're comfortable with with what God must be comfortable with. That's actually, oddly enough, you could be very stoically emotional. That's kind of an emotion-based thing. I will only worship God in ways that I'm comfortable with. Isn't that being ruled by emotion? Because we should worship God in the ways he's called on us to do so, even if it makes us uncomfortable. And I think, actually, it's impossible to truly be in the presence and the glory of God and be comfortable. I don't think those two things go together. If your God always makes you comfortable, you have a maid, not a Lord. Okay? So that's just, we need to remember that every now and then. So he starts where we often start, doesn't he? How often do you go outside, or you're maybe you're on vacation, maybe you go to Colorado and you're there at the mountains, or maybe, you know, Norlene is out at the beach at Fort Aransas, or wherever you are, you may just be in your backyard, and you look at what God has done, and you say what David has said. God, how do people not believe in you? Everything you made, it just, I, I can see you in all of this. I can, you know, the more we look, the more we actually see the complexity, the more we see the creativity, the colors, the lights, the show that goes on in places where no eyes were even necessarily intended to see. We see the glory of God. I think if you're a Christian, you get excited when NASA puts a new telescope in space because you know what they're going to see, don't you? The glory of God. Now, not everybody admits it. Not everybody confesses it. Not everybody sees it with spiritual eyes and is discerning. But you go into those pictures and you go on to, to NASA's, which is cool that they make all that public. And you go and look at all those photos and you can see the heavens declare the glory of God. Get outside the city lights and just look up at the stars. And it's so obvious to us as people of faith what God has done. And that's not a delusion. That's the reality. I said a second ago, we go further and further out into space and we see greater and greater complexity. Not only does it sometimes answer questions we thought might never be answered, sometimes it creates questions we thought might never be asked because we see a vastness, not just of space, but of engineering, of physics, that demand a creator. So that's that's what we call the teleological argument. There's your big word for the day, okay? Benny used to sit right over here, and, and he would tell me the next day that was two syllables, too many, James. Okay, okay. So I get it, teleological. I didn't make the word up, but I do like how many syllables it is. Uh, anyway, that just means the argument 
looking at, in this case, creation, but at anything, if I look at this remote, I have to understand somebody made this remote. It required a designer, an engineer, a manufacturer. Nothing comes just from nothing. And I could put plastic in a box and shake it, and I don't get out designed things, do I? I wish I would. It would have been cheaper than a 3D printer. But, you know, you can't just put those little spools of plastic in a box and shake them and get what you need. It just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. We look at even some of the theories of how things come to be or how things change. Uh, and we're not getting into evolution versus creation or anything like that. And one reason I would tell you is there may not be a greater argument for a creator than the fact that living creatures actually do adapt and change to the environment. What they think is their argument against God is an incredible argument for God. Because which does it take, or which design requires a greater intelligence and greater engineering and more complex design? A creation that is static and never changes, or a creation that adapts to itself as it goes? A creation where things can adapt to drought, can adapt to... You see what I'm saying? The smarter person is the one who's able to make something that can actually change according to the needs of the day. You see what I'm getting at? The idea that plants and animals and bacteria and everything else can change just is an even more incredible design. When's the last time gas prices went up and your Chevrolet adapted to get better gas mileage? You see what I'm saying? It doesn't work that way, does it? Which would would that not be a great engineer? Yeah, Ralph would be selling them like crazy, wouldn't he? Yeah. Oh, gas went up. Oh, now I get 35 miles per gallon in my Silverado. Woohoo! That would be awesome, wouldn't it? It just it would be incredible, and yet that's where we live. That's where we live. Our world declares an incredible creator, engineer, and physicist in God. It's really quite incredible when you just stop to think about it. And that's not even my point today, so we'll, we'll go on. But the argument is there. And a lot of times when people go to Psalm 19, they go for that reason. If you just will open your eyes. Now, I'll tell you what amazes me. You go down, not out. And in, not out. And you know what you find is an entire universe of smallness that we haven't even found the base form of yet. Every time they think they've gotten down, they thought it was molecules, then they thought it was atoms, then they thought it was electrons, protons, and neutrons, then they thought, and then they thought, and then they thought. And all they find is there still seems to be stuff affecting, and there still seems to be stuff smaller that we cannot yet even comprehend, see, and so they just theorize. The complexity goes in every possible direction. And this is where Richard Rogers, one of my teachers, would have gone into the church and the fourth dimensions, but I'll spare you. All right. I love what Hebrews says because it kind of sums this part of this psalm up, and it, it sums up what I'm talking about as far as this argument for God from creation, and that is this. Every house is built by someone. You don't drive down the road and say, oh, well, look what just popped up. I know 
you know, Frisco 20 years ago, people thought that. They just thought they were they were growing out of somewhere. Uh, but it, it's everyone's got a builder. And God created the builder, the wood, the nails, all of it. Is it not wild? The natural resources that he created on this little ball and how he put them in different places and what people are able to do with them through the intelligence that he gave and shared with those he created in his own image. And so the Hebrew writer says, every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. David marvels because he says, you know, these, the heavens, they, they, they don't even have words. They don't have speech, yet their words go everywhere and their speech goes to the very ends of the earth. He says, just look at the sun and the moon. They look like they're getting ready for a wedding out there. That's kind of a, a metaphor that's used more than once in the Psalms. But it, it's, it's likened one time to symbolize Christ and the church getting ready for their wedding day. But he says, look at that. The sun arrayed in all that glory and the moon, the moon like a bride coming out. And it goes from one end of the earth and everything is blessed by it. And it's really quite incredible. It's just this big atomic bonfire out there floating around in space that he has created in such a way that it not only gives us warmth, as David said, but gives quite literally gives energy to the earth through plants and everything else. Is that not just wild, the way God has designed things? Yet they never say a word. They don't have to, do they? By their very being and by their nature, by the nature of their complexity, they bear witness through their design of the great engineer, so to speak, that is God. And they declare his glory, but they don't just give evidence. They give him glory. Now, Jesus said to a bunch of cranky people who were a bunch of cranky religious people, he said, you know, if you don't praise God, these very rocks will rise up and praise him in your place. They've already started singing in a very real sense because they don't just say, well, I'm here, something made me. Creation gives praise to its God. Now, I don't think we fully understand how that works, but I'll give you a little bit of homework. Go on to, to YouTube and put in there, ah, uh, what's the guy, Louis Giglio. Look up Louis Giglio, Wales, and singing. Louis Giglio, Wales, and singing. Nobody hit play now. We're here through the middle of the auditorium. I know how that goes. But he he match, he meshes together. Um, I think it's the song, uh, How Great Is Our God, and the singing of the whales, so that whales and people praise the Lord together, so to speak. Really, really cool video. It's not, that's not an argue, that's not a sophisticated apologetic argument, that video, but it is a very cool thing to go watch. So, you know, go home and watch that. Uh, I'm not, I, I think the people did sing with instruments, but the whales were totally a cappella. So it's fine. What, whales are Church of Christ. Um, they, they <laughs> I could get myself in so much trouble today. I feel it. The timer just says that's the only trouble I have time for, though. So we're good. Uh, the next thing he goes into is about the law. And this is where it's like the first part is exciting. It's creation. You know, we like that. You know, I like to, I haven't done it in a while because it's hot, but I like to go kayaking and go out like that. Some of you like to go out fish on the water, all that kind of stuff. 
And I love that because you go out and you do quite literally commune with God in nature. So that part of the psalm is exciting. And then he goes, and the law. And we all go, what now? The law, the law is just perfect. And it's so refreshing, which none of you have ever said during our daily Bible reading. When we've gotten to Leviticus, nobody ever says, I was so refreshed. I read Leviticus yesterday and I just thought, wow. And then I got to Numbers. Nobody says that about numbers either. I, I'm weird. I actually find Leviticus fascinating uh, in terms of the symbolism of Christ and some of the sacrifices and things. I find that fascinating. But I'm with you. When we get to counting how many uh, donkeys and camels there are, man, if I can't sleep, I guess that's where I should go. Hey, don't count sheep, count donkeys in the book of Numbers. But he understands something I think that we just a lot of times miss, and it's this. It's, it's just the perspective of what is he looking at versus what we're looking at. We look at the difference between the law and the gospel, and so a lot of times we look at, at the, uh, the sacrifices, we look at the, the rules about, and regulations about how to keep a Sabbath or count your mint, your dill, and your cumin. We see Jesus you know, criticize them that they took great care to do that, but they completely missed the other things. You know what David is talking about? The other things. He's not talking about counting out the mint, the dill, and the cumin. He's not talking about uh, Sabbath day regulations or anything like that. He's looking at something else. We see this. We see rules and regulations and sacrifices and blood and, and boils and pus. I'm so glad, you know, not to be a priest in the Old Testament times who had to inspect boils. Gross. Don't like any of that. What David saw was mercy. He saw the command to love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from the book of Leviticus as well. He saw graciousness towards your neighbor. I've mentioned this before, that if uh, you lived by the old law fully, and it wouldn't be all about the sacrifices and those things, the day-to-day -day rules of the law, let's say you were a farmer, you would be one of the most generous farmers on earth. Because in the law was built in care for the poor and the needy. It was built in care for those who were sick and in distress. And we sometimes don't see that kind of care being taken when we see Jesus confronting some of the Jews, not all, but some of the Jews uh, in the Gospels. But it was there in the law. Had they followed it like they were supposed to, kind of like now if we follow what we're supposed to, if they had followed what they were supposed to, you would find the most compassionate people on earth because that's what the law was really all about. You go back through and you look at how he tells you to t treat other people, and you see what David saw. Love, grace, mercy, a common decency that was missing then in the world and is missing now in the world. It trains you to look beyond the end of your own nose and beyond yourself and to really see the other person as being made in the image of God and that meant that as a people, individually and as a community of believers, that we would take care of one another, spiritually, physically, in every way. There were, there were laws protecting people that people had never, people were not protecting. People had never bothered, they didn't care about, they had discarded. And yet the law said, no, you care for these people and you take care of them. And you look after their health and all of those things. So kind of fascinating that way. So David looks at the law and he doesn't see drudgery 
David looks at the law and says, it's so refreshing to know that the God who created us created us for a life that is better, more hopeful, and more gracious than anything in the else in the world has ever offered. He does tell us, you know, by the laws, you will be warned. He kind of, the two words I'm going to use are guardrails and rewards. It warns us when we're getting into things we should not be getting into. And so the law did contain some thou shalt nots, as you well know, more than just in the 10 you, th you think you know. There's also a whole bunch of others, dozens and dozens of other things there that he says. Some of the chapters I don't like in Leviticus because some chapters of Leviticus you read, you think, who in the world would even have a problem with that? Like, why would you be doing that? This should not be your struggle. And the law was there to say, no, it should not. The world should not look like this. It shouldn't look like people who are greedy, who are power hungry. It should not look like people who are dishonest and manipulative. It should not look like people who are just going after whatever they want. And if they have to kill somebody to get it, they're willing to do it. The world should never look like that. How do we know that? Because the law told us that. It said that you respect life from the unborn to the, cra to the crave. No, to the grave. That you care for life and you protect life. And if you take it, you will pay for it with your life. Why did it say that? We go, well, that's terrible. It had capital punishment. Yes, it did. Why? God is that serious about protecting life. He cares about every life, including the ones who are outside of those guardrails. He calls them to repentance, calls them to reconciliation, and calls them to spiritual healing and forgiveness and grace. All of that within the law. And again, I've said this before, I'll say it again. If you see no grace in the Old Testament, you're reading it wrong. Try again. Try again. Because David saw it because it was there. In the law he found forgiveness. Had to go and do sacrifices, but what were those really about? We reword that. Who were those really about? Jesus. And the blood of the cross flows in two directions, from the cross back and forward. He reconciled and atoned for their sin. They just didn't know him yet. But it was there. Blood flows both directions. All those who came to him by faith are saved. Ask Abraham. By them, your servant is warned, don't do that. In keeping them, there is great reward. I will bless you. I will gift you. I will renew you. I will refresh you. And David knew that. We look at Psalm 51, where he found grace before the Lord. In his repentance, he found forgiveness and he found grace. That's refreshing, isn't it? Because we all know the mistakes we've made, the dumb things we've said or or thought, or whatever. And there is grace for that in Jesus Christ. David already knew, even though, again, he didn't know all you get to know. You're blessed to live in the time that you do, that you get to see more fully the working of God and the grace of God. So, being a people more blessed than even the person who wrote the psalm, what should we do? Shouldn't we be people who sing that? Shouldn't we be people who, like David and like the creation around us, declare 
the praise and the glory of God? Verse 14. Go down to verse 14. Let's read that again. Get it into our heads. May the words, may these words, I'm going to quote the 1984 version, I think. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Why do you think he ends the psalm coming back to words and thoughts? But not creations this time. He started with the heavens declare the glory of God. They don't even have words and yet they shout the praise of God. And then he ends and says, may my words and my thoughts be pleasing to you. Because David wants us to do this. He wants us to join in the praise that creation shouts. And he knows that begins with our hearts. What do you think about? What do you, what do you focus on every day and, and through the week? It may be your fears. It may be your tasks. It may be different people. It may be your frustrations. And what happens in all of that? Sometimes it drives you to prayer. That's a good thing. Sometimes it drives you to griping and complaining. That's a bad thing. That will never please the Lord. How do I know that? Philippians 2, 14. Do nothing with grumbling and complaining. Do not complain or grumble about anything, but in everything. What are you supposed to do? How about this? We'll do this. Why don't we do this? Start. I'm not my fellow complainer, so you know. I, I get it. It's tough. It's a hard habit to break. But we have to, don't we? Satan uses that as a way to warp our view of the whole world around us. He will get you so angry and so fed up that you will start to think that Satan's winning. Who does that benefit? It's the wrong glory and the wrong God, isn't it, little G? Look around at what God is doing. See and open your eyes to what he's done. If all you can see that's good is creation, fine. Focus on it until you see God again. Focus on it until you see his glory again. Focus on it until you finally wake up again to, you know what? The world may be going to hell in a handbasket, but God is still saving. God is still redeeming. God is still forgiving. God is still blessing. God has still created everything that is good and perfect in this world, the book of James says. God is still, period. God is still. See him for who he is and then praise him for what he's done. And if all you can thank God for is the muffin on your plate on a Monday morning, Praise God for the muffin on your plate on a Monday morning. I have thanked God for sardines. You can be thankful for what you've done, right? You can be thankful for anything he's put in front of you, okay? You can do that. Do it. Join in the praise. It's amazing how transformative that is. And so he ends his psalm with, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I have put... Matthew twelve thirty four there, because I, I, we need to remember this. This is where Jesus says, out of the overflow of my heart, out of the overflow of your heart, our hearts, the mouth speaks. So I have that question up there. Does what you say and what you dwell on bring glory to God? Would you say the words you spoke this week 
would speak praise to the Lord, would give credit to God, would bring somebody else to say, you know, maybe there's something to him, to the Lord, because of what you said. May the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Let's pray together.